the Recovery Revolution will be podcast on the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Network. This is the Unruffled Podcast, Episode 91. This is a podcast about recovery through creativity. We live an intentional life. We thrive. I am Sandra Primo. And I'm Tammy Salas. And we are The Unruffled. Hey, Sandra. Good morning. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. We are on a little tear here trying to do, um, getting caught up on the podcast because we're just going to take a little break over the holidays. Yeah, so. and take a little time off. So we are recording things back to back today, even though they will come out at wildly different times. <laughs> <laughs> right. This will air on New Year's <laughs> Eve. So um, I hope everybody is going to have a safe, wonderful New Year's Eve. Yes. Um, wake up sober tomorrow. No God. hangover. Yeah. Won't that feel so good? Yes. Yes. We'll feel good. Spoiler alert. <laughs> we'll feel good. <laughs> That's a good spoiler alert. It really no, is. No big plans. We're going to be with our friends um, tonight um, or uh, on that night. And um, yeah, there's no major plans like I used to always want to make. So that feels mm-hmm. that feels good. Yeah. No big ones here either. We may go to a party. May not. Yeah. Haven't decided. Maybe we'll decide that day. (laughs) Yeah, we're traveling. So we're out, we're down in Southern California. And um, I try to hit a meeting around when I go see my friends. I kind of know where the meetings are now. And um, it's always kind of fun to to go to an out-of-town meeting. So I might might do that. Um, But we have a little four-year-old in our midst from France. So he is adorable and really entertains us. So I'm looking forward to a fun little night with him. Oh, fun. Yeah. Fun. Um, so we are wrapping things up for the year. We had a great year. This is going to be episode 91. And mm, um, we are approaching 100, guys. I, I wonder what we're going to do for that. No, <laughs> we should have a party and record from the party. We should. We should. Okay. Put that on our list. <laughs> Let's put that on our list. Well, since we both don't have a whole lot of time, I think our intro is going to be pretty short today, right? Pretty short today. Um, we just want to say thank you guys for listening this year. Yeah. And we love our we love our listeners. We love the Unruffled listeners. And if you are listening to this podcast for the first time, we have a secret Facebook group. And if you need a little extra support for the new year, um, find us on Facebook, Sandra Talbert Primo or Tammy Salas and friend us and send us a message to add you. And we would be happy to do that. Yeah. It'd be great. We have like 600 ladies over there now, I think. Sure do. Yeah. It's uh, a great group. Yeah. And our guests, we, we add them if they feel up for it, we add them to the unruffled group so that when their episode airs, you guys can interact with them and leave comments and ask questions. Or, you know, if you want to know more about the episode, um, I just, I know we list, we released, uh, Anna Bilby's, uh, 
episode and someone wanted to see the crystal grid that she made me for the Recovery Gals Art Exchange that we talk about in the show. So I posted a picture of that today under her episode. So anything like that, if you guys want to interact in the group, um, I know that our, our guests have been really generous with their time and responding to everybody. So if they don't, we will. Yes. 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 <laughs> okay. Well, today on the podcast, we have Jackie Manti. And Jackie is an award winning copywriter and journalist based in Chicago. She's a co- the co founder of Low Class, a multimedia production studio in Chicago, and co host of the podcast, A Feminist and a Comedian Walk into a Bar. Jackie's interdisciplinary creative work includes hand embroidering historical black and white photographs, as well as writing and performing live lit essays and prose. Yeah, and her writing has been published in national magazines, and her artwork has been published by the Chicago Writers Association and numerous art zines. Her monographic exhibition of artwork and its companion book of creative nonfiction, both titled Gone Country debuted at Chicago's um, Slate Arts and Performance Gallery in September of 2018. And if you want to learn more about Jackie after the interview, her website is JackieManti.com. On Instagram, that's the same thing, at JackieManti. And Twitter, it's Jackie underscore Manti. So I think mm-hmm. you guys are going to love her. She reached out to us, and, and her work is just so beautiful. I know it resonated with you, Sandra. Yeah, her work is amazing. We actually had a lot in common about a lot of different things. We had a lot of the same interests, even though she's quite a, she's in her 30s. So she's a little younger um, than we are. But we, we, there was just so much, so many commonalities. And um, I'm so glad that she did reach out to us because this was a really good conversation. And I think everybody's gonna really enjoy it. I loved it from start to finish. And um, mm-hmm. I think we're going to stay in touch with her because she she just, uh, her story resonated. And I, I sent her a couple of things after we talked when she, when she gets to the end talking about next year's project or what she's going to work on. And um, I hope that you listeners just enjoy her as much as we did. Yeah, you guys enjoy Jackie. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are you guys? guys? Good. Cold, good. <laughs> Cold. <laughs> Jackie, where Jackie, where in the world do you live? I'm in Chicago. Is it chilly there? It's cold. We've already had our first blizzard. <laughs> wow, really? Which is so Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's a long winter in Chicago, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very well, long. I feel like my first two winters here were pretty mild, so I've been spoiled. And it's not, I work from home, so I don't have to brave it every day. So that's good. <laughs> I feel like I may have a future with Chicago. I, I've, I've only been once, and it was just um, uh, the summer before last. Mm-hmm. Uh, my kids and I took a trek to see Hamilton. Oh, cool. and, um, and my son does improv. He's done improv for a long time. And so um, he wants to live in Chicago. That's his, that's his goal. That's Ooh. his place. That he wants to end up after high school. And so anyway, I've, I keep telling him that that sounds like a great idea as long as he has a comfy couch for his mom to come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Chicago is such a cool city. And yeah, for comedy, improv, stand up, that's it. This is the place. Yeah. And art. Art. Yeah. Art, yeah. 
I have a friend that lives there I met at a writing conference um, called Write Doe Bay, and she is a poet and uh, an activist and a feminist and an incredible writer. And cool. um, she's so, we worked on some projects together, but she really, it's hard. Winter's hard. Like March comes around and she has three little kids and she's just like, I'm done. I'm like, this is oh, not to yeah. be yeah. Right. I always feel bad. Yeah. So, like, I'm posting pictures from California. She's like, I, I kind of hate you. I hate you right, right now, really. <laughs> but there's a lot of good things that she likes about being there, too. Yeah. Well, that is, I love it. I love that you're in Chicago. Um, Jackie, we're so happy to have you today. And the way we like to start off this show is um, we want to hear about your drinking story and how you came into recovery so yeah thanks for having me I'm excited to be here I um I don't keep track of my days because I'm such a perfectionist I I feel like (laughs) counting them would just trigger me to start being obsessive about it but I looked Mm -hmm. it up this morning to see um how many days I've been sober it's 965 days two years seven months 21 days, which is kind of awesome. And I'm like, Oh, I should like do this every half year. Just look that number up and just be proud of myself. Um, yeah. Kidding. Though I will say my dry date is a little nebulous. I compare it to like a birthday for your stray pet. Like you're not <laughs> exactly sure when it happened, but it was generally around that time. Right. So, um, around April 15th is what I consider my 2016. I consider my the last day of drinking. I had recently just turned 30 and I had been trying for about a year and a half to like, quote, manage my drinking. You know, I had, I knew it was a problem. I was a big party girl. Um, and it was really extending into beyond the party, you know, and I was drinking alone a lot. I do two bottles of wine a night. It was definitely affecting my life so negatively. And, but I, I didn't think it was, an issue because I was very high functioning. I thought there's, no, I'm not an alcoholic, you know, I just need to manage it better, learn a new way to drink. <laughs> right? right. Yes. And, um, <laughs> I know uh, this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I know this internal right. dialogue. <laughs> right. Yeah. You make so many like bargains with yourself. And so I had been on this cycle of, I would, um, drink, you know, I'd go out and I'd try to do just two or three glasses of wine or of beers and then go home. But by the third night I'd go out, I'd have another bender. And I, so I'd done that a lot. I'd had several rock bottoms and trying to quit. And, um, but that, that day in April, I think it wasn't even my worst experience, but I, you know, I'd gone out for a friend's a part of a celebration. And, um, I was thinking I'll just leave at 10 o'clock at night. It was like a Tuesday, you know, I'm like, I'll go, I'll just hang out and then go home. And the next thing I know I'm, it's the morning and I am so hungover. I'm, I have no brawl on in a bed. And I just was like, I cannot do this anymore. I'm so sick of this. And, Um, it was like just this cognitive dissonance of my, who I knew I was and wanted to be just did not align with how I was behaving because of drinking. And honestly, I was just terrified. I was terrified that I had been trying to manage this and quit sometimes for a year and a half, almost two years. And I couldn't do it. 
And something about that day, just it just clicked. And I, again, no pressure. That's why I didn't like try to remember the date because I'm like, I had been talking about it for so long. I needed this to just be a private internal experience that I was committed to and, you know, didn't want to tell anyone about it, just needed it to be my thing that I worked on and fixed. You know, I was so done and disappointing myself. And so, you know, I had been a big party girl most of my life. I started drinking at 16. I loved it. Um, to me, you know, drinking for my 20s and, you know, as a teenager, it represented for a while freedom to me. It was a coping mechanism for feeling, I don't know, just not able to express myself. Um, drinking was an outlet. It made me feel free and independent. And eventually it became the thing trapping me. Right. But, um, that's what it was. And, you know, and I just thought I worked hard, played hard. And so, uh, that last bender night, you know, I, (laughs) I, gosh, it just was sort of, I just, it was, I had had so many nights like that before I, you know, was drinking beer and then I, that just got out of control. I, the last thing I remember, I was snorting cocaine off of a table and drinking whiskey and I was done. I was just so ready to be done. And, you know, they say not to make big life decisions when you enter sobriety, but I was moving to Chicago in May. So I had a few weeks left in, I was in Columbus, Ohio, and I was like, I'm about to move to a new city and I cannot continue this pattern. Um, And Chicago, in essence, was like a sort of a self-imposed rehab. Um, I didn't, you know, plan for it to be that way. But when I moved here, that's really when I started just spending a lot of time alone and um, working on this artwork and uh, recovering, really. And something about getting myself away from the people and places and patterns that I had established in Columbus uh, allowed me to really get sober. I think that, you know, it was no one's fault. It was my own. I just had become such a, you know, I was known for drinking and I was so tied to that narrative of being a drinker and proud of it. And um, in that city, that's what I was. And so it was too, it was just too hard in the beginning, I think, to, to change that there. So coming to a new city and, you know, being able to redefine what my life looked like in that space was so important to the recovery. I feel that now, you know, two and a half years, almost, uh, almost three years later, like I could go back to Columbus and not drink. Right. I'm so confident in the recovery process. I work on it daily. I see the rewards every day of not drinking to my life. So it's, um, such a part of me now but you know when you're in that experience it seems impossible when you're Mm -hmm. living that life every day and it's such a part of your daily experience that it was scary I didn't think I could quit so Mm -hmm. did you have a partner at the time yeah so that's that's a big part of the story so I um was dating a man in Columbus and we were together for about a year and we would drink a lot together and 
he, you know, about six months into our relationship, he's like, you know, I think maybe you have a drinking problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, of course, didn't want to hear this. I've been, you know, in some way or another, I've heard that my whole life, just this, or my drinking life of like, wow, that's, you're really extreme. <laughs> this, mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've never the sober one at a party. I'm always the party. You know, I was always the drunkest. Lots the of- closer. Totally. And proud of it, you know, and, Mm um, and eventually though, you know, that just gets worse and worse. And I was, I treated him really badly when I was drunk, especially there was so much alcohol was such a salve for trauma and emotional things that I just had not worked through. And it, drinking allowed me to sort of cover it up and groundhog day it and keep pushing it down. But of course it would come out. And especially with him, this person who I, who knew me better than anyone, I would take it out on him, you know? And so he broke up with me (laughs) because he, he kept telling me, um, if you don't, he never told me to quit drinking, but he was like, I need to, remove myself from this situation because you're hurting me, you're hurting our relationship. And it was a good example of setting boundaries, right? Which I had no idea what that looked yeah, like. Yeah, what? <laughs> what yeah. <are> <laughs> when we're drinking, what are those? Um, so he, he was like, well, I'm, I have to break up with you. I love you. But like, you, you know, we had tried to work on like, oh, I'll just drink a glass of water after every drink. Well, I would never do it. I would do it once when he was watching and then, you know, <laughs> forget all about that. Oh, yeah. that you made. I totally. know. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, he was like, I'm moving, he's a stand up comedian and he was like, I'm moving to Chicago. You're not coming with me. I'm sorry to do this, but like, you have to work on you. And I, that just made me so angry, um, that this person, a man could tell me what to do or thought he knew me. How dare he? Um, so I was like, okay, bye. Uh, but of course inside I was like, don't go. Um, so we, so there was like a, almost two years in between where we were broken up, but still, we still communicated a lot, but I, I still lived in Columbus and was single and was still drinking, a lot. Um, but that sort of implanted in my brain again, like I said, I had heard this a lot that I'd had issues with drinking, but I never listened to it until him. And there was something about losing him and just being really honest with myself that I was the problem in this relationship. And I had been in abusive relationships in the past. I chased those sort of things. I feel like I, sort of sought relationships where I could blame the other person for being worse than me. So I didn't have to face my own shit. (laughs) And so to have someone who was strong enough to say, I can't stay in this and you have to help yourself before I can help you or any, you know, like that, this has to be an internal process. Um, and especially someone I cared so deeply about, you know, I was still in love with him. It made me at least start thinking about it. Right. So, right. Because his intentions probably, you know, he probably wasn't trying to be righteous or anything. He was saying it because he loved you. Right. And I didn't get that. You know, I did that. I just did not understand that. And I hated him for so long for leaving me. And I did it. 
it was felt so complicated, which in hindsight, I'm like, it wasn't, you needed to quit drinking. Right. (laughs) To me, it just felt, you know, I kept coming up with all these reasons, but so I kept drinking. Um, but I started reading books about sobriety, listening to stuff about sobriety, personal development, therapy, you know, just sort of setting a foundation for what would eventually become my recovery. Um, but it, it wasn't happening yet. I was still, you know, again, just this dissonance of who I was becoming and how I actually, it actually played out and the choices I made in my life were so different. Um, but so, you know, him and I still talked and he would encourage me to not even, he would never say you need to quit drinking it. Cause I think he knew that wouldn't work with me, but he really forced me to like be honest with myself about my own baggage and the way I was coping with things that weren't my fault, but that I needed to, to, the way I was reacting to them was creating situations that were my fault or my choice. You know, fault is a heavy word. Like I was choosing, right. I was, I was choosing to react to the trauma in a very negative self-destructive way. And so, um, so we, okay. So we're still talking throughout these two years and eventually we're, I'm, I'm getting better, you know, like I'm starting to quote manage my drinking or at least talk about it or start admitting, um, my own nonsense and separating. I, I used to be very, a very black and white thinker, but separating this notion of like, I could have been a victim in this circumstance And then also here's my role in something and what I can do to make sure something like that never happens again. Right. I don't, I think before when I was drinking those, that couldn't coexist, right. There was no nuance in a situation of trauma. Um, so just sort of dissecting that. Right. And so we decided to try to make it work again with this new sort of relationship we had been forming in that meantime of being broken up, but being friends and like working on, ourselves, you know, he had work to do too. So like, we would just talk about our own experiences of becoming better people really. Um, so I was planning on moving to Chicago to just be with him. We were going to live separately, but you know, see if we can make it work. And so that bender on April 15th, 2016 was a few weeks before I was supposed to move to Chicago. And something about that, I think just turning 30 and like moving to Chicago and like having a chance to make this work with the love of my life. I was like, I have, I have to make this choice. And so I'm proud that it was a decision not based in trying to make a relationship work. It really was trying to make myself who I knew I wanted to be. Right. It was, it was a completely personal independent decision, but he helped me get there. And so now, um, we're married. (laughs) And then, I I feel so lucky that our love story could have worked out in that way, you know, that it, um, that I was brave enough to face myself and the demons down and work on it and recover. And so uh, when I was in Chicago, again, I know it's such a unique experience to have moved here and had a one person support system that was incredible. And someone who knew the city. It's not like I just moved here totally blind. And, um, you know, I had him to, and he knew me, he knew how I had been before he knew he could see all these changes. He could keep encouraging me. Um, so yeah. So now, you know, 
we run our podcast is called a feminist and a comedian walk into a bar. And so he still drinks, but like, I don't. And he's, he's so supportive of this, um, regular recovery. What I appreciate about him is again, setting up, he, he's very good at setting up boundaries that protect himself, which has made me do that for myself. Do you know what I mean? Like it's Mm -hmm. me, it's helped me see that in action. And so then I do that to him and to my worst self, to my best self, you know, creating those boundaries and, and knowing that the boundaries are okay. Like that's such an important aspect of being your best self, you know, it's mm-hmm. not a bad self-discipline is not a bad word. Yeah. He models that for you. So yeah, I, I, um, many people do that for me. You know what I mean? They model something. Mm-hmm. You're like, I, yeah, I want that. I like how they do that. Yeah. Um, I'll try that in my own life. Mm-hmm. I love that story. I, I, I liken that kind of, um, self-discovery phase that reading the memoirs and all, um, you know, moderating even, I, I, I like, I ca- always call that the step zero Yeah, <laughs> because I work the 12 steps and I always think like that, that's like the, before you're getting ready, you know, you you know, Absolutely. something's up. Yes. You can't lie to yourself. You're starting, anymore. yeah, you're starting to look at it at least mm-hmm. uh, objectively almost. Yeah. Well, yeah. you're admitting it to yourself, maybe not another human being, but you're admitting it to yourself in that right. quiet way that can finally yeah. allow you to even begin. And it, it's such a slow build. And I feel yeah. like there's, um, I had put so much pressure on like, well, this is the date and now I quit and then I'm done. But that, you know, that's not how it works. It, at least for me, like my, yeah, step zero, that's such a good <laughs> term for it. Like I needed that year and a half almost to just read about it, learn about it, approach myself differently you know, because if you had said you need to get sober, I'd have been like, that's never going to happen. <laughs> right. Well, when you when you moved to, to the city and you had him, which is great. And, and I mean, that, to have a, um, a partner, a spouse to be so supportive, you're very, very lucky. Yes. Um, but did you how did you create community? Were there other people? So other sober people that you ran into? I mean, I know they're kind of unicorns in the beginning when you're looking. You're like, where are all the unicorns? I don't see you. Right. How did you build up um, a network of, or did you build up a network of sober people? Uh, No. (laughs) Okay. I, well, I did have, I had a friend in Columbus. She was a former editor of mine at a newspaper who was so important to me in that um, step zero phase. She had quit drinking maybe a year or two before I did. And um, seeing her do it, uh, was big, I think, in the back of my mind. And so her and I would talk a lot about it. She'd come out to parties and like not be drinking and I'd be wasted telling her how I was going to quit drinking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So to have her like non-judgmental friendship throughout this process was so important. Um, but as for creating a network in Chicago, I like, I like didn't want to form one. Um, this is going to, let me try to break that down. So I, I knew that part of my problem and why I loved binging was this sort of codependency toward other people and trying to make everyone else happy and be this person everyone else wanted me to be um, or that I thought they wanted me to be, you know, like I would kind of impose that on them. But I, I knew that I needed, I just needed to be by myself. Do you know what I mean? Like I had spent so much time being with other people and, um, using that as a way to escape what I 
needed to create inside of myself a self referential relationship. You know, I, I, I knew that I needed to be alone for a while. And I, I think that in, you know, in Columbus, I worked at a, a weekly newspaper and I was big, you know, I was out a lot. I had a lot of friends. I was in a, in these artist networks, communities. I, I just was so out there that being in Chicago where I didn't have that pressure to show up and, you know, <laughs> kind of be a drinker or, you know, try to be someone who was outgoing because that would make me anxious. So then I would drink, you know, I didn't, I didn't even want that at first. Like I just needed to be alone. Yeah. And so, and I sort of write about that in the book where to, at first, like, that's why I didn't pursue AA because I was like, I just know myself well enough after this step zero phase to know that I'll then get hooked into this and just like be about, you know, I don't know if it would have been a bad thing necessarily, but like, I'll be all about this community and who I am in this community, you know, what's my story for these people, you know? And I, I just had to stop that and rebuild myself first. It's almost like you got to go to rehab or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, You know, as you're, as you're talking about this, I keep hearing that phrase, you know, that you hear sometimes in the rooms or even outside of, about pulling a geographic, like, you know, you hear about these people that if I could just move or, you know, completely reinvent myself, then all my problems would be solved. But yet, no matter where you go, there you are. And right. but it but it sounds like that you were intentional about it, like so that you yeah. took that time to really, um, you know, dig through the artifacts of of your story and and try to heal yourself that way. Absolutely, and I think it it was a big. So I, I think it might have been different if I had done step zero in Chicago, you know. But I did it mm-hmm. in. And then, yeah, that was like the next step. And it was sort of like this, you know, my little studio apartment in Chicago was rehab for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you just reminded me too, like that first year, I, I didn't go to AA um, the first seven months and then I did, but I, I was alone a lot and I really needed that. And to sleep, Sandra, you talk about sleep a lot. Yes. Sleep. And I wrote like a mad woman. I yeah. mean, my journals kind of saved me as well. I didn't, I didn't go to 12 step for four or five months of my sobriety too, because I, I was like you, I felt like I need to do some self-exploration first mm-hmm. and, um, I need to, I need to get dedicated to this new path and yes. I need to do it. I, yeah. And I need to, to, you know, do some explore self-exploration and, um, that worked for me. That doesn't work for everybody, but it, it did for me as well. Yeah. And has there come a point in your recovery where you, you need a little bit more or has it morphed and changed in these two and a half years? Oh my gosh, absolutely. I, it's funny because recovery, I used to think of that as just a, you know, a, a set tangible time period, but recovery is such a continuously in flux experience in my life. And, um, it's shifted, you know, I, um, when I did this show, the gone country and in September, um, I feel like that was almost like a closing of the first chapter of my recovery and a new one has opened. Um, so when the gallery show opened, I was so 
nervous and terrified to be presenting my work. And, um, you know, who did I think I was calling myself an artist and, you know, just all this self-doubt and fear and anxiety about opening this show was creeping up. And I hadn't felt that sort of extreme anxiety and, um, out of control, like emotional state since getting sober, right? That used to be something I experienced regularly, but this, this was a new scary step for me. And I started to feel myself, um, you know, I'd been, I've been working on mindfulness for so long. I could tell that I was reenacting compulsive behaviors, but not using alcohol. Like I was chain smoking cigarettes. I was taking on, I'm a freelance writer. So I was taking on a bunch of work because I was just afraid, you know, and, um, I, I was just finding these ways to sort of act compulsively to escape this feeling of anxiety and fear about releasing artwork, you know, Mm -hmm. that I, I was like, Oh my God, like I can spot this now. I see that addiction is not it for me. It's not just alcohol. Like it is these behavior patterns that keep showing up. And I was like, I need to do something. And so I went to, there's a a daily AA meetings, two blocks from my house. And I'm like, you need to get yourself to a meeting and just show up physically for myself. That's what it was. It was like, I had done so much of the work, the internal work and, uh, you know, my life looked so different, but it's still here. That's still those, um, reactions are still a part of me. And so I've been going to AA since September (laughs) after I wrote that I don't do AA, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. the universe always finds ways to remind you, uh, you're not in total control, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Every day. (laughs) Or you you don't know everything and things might change. Yes. Right. Right. And I think it's just the best you can do is just be aware of how you're reacting to that and take steps to help yourself. And to me that right now that looks like going to AA meetings and show, and again, just showing up for myself physically is a huge reminder for myself that this is important. This is something I need to keep working on and keep doing and that I want to keep doing, you know? So, so now I, I do go to AA and I, and honestly, I, it's been so important. Like, again, this, talk about a chapter closing and a new one opening. Um, I go, I go to the women's meetings, but I've also been going to a big book meeting where there's men at the meeting and of all ages and men used to sort of be, I was afraid of them a little bit, or I'd be angry, you know, not at the particular man, but like (laughs) having been raised in a sexist society, you know, there's just so many things I was mad about. And um, being in these AA meetings with these men who I'm like, we are this, we're the going through the same thing. They're just you human. Right. And it has shown me that I've healed a lot of trauma that was causing so much binge drinking in the first place. And, um, reminded me that I am moving forward and just opened this wealth of love inside of me for people who have hurt me in the past. And, you know, just how I look at other humans, you know, it's, it's, so it's been so good to have that experience that I don't think I was ready for in the beginning. You know, I think I needed to work through some things before I could get to that point where I could have that experience in a meeting. 
I love how you, I, I love, I love that you highlighted that about co-ed meetings. You know, I felt the same way you articulated that really well. I, I grew up in a family where my father was pretty verbally abusive and that's because he was abused as well. And he, he never did the inner work to fix that. And, um, you know, and then through the years, I chose men who resembled my father mm-hmm. because that's what you do. And, um, yeah, in meetings, that was like kind of one of the first times, aside from my current husband, who is who is very self-reflective and very deliberate. But um, it was the first time that I got to hear men who were like healthy and like working on themselves. And mm-hmm. I remember that same thing, just being so stunned, like, wow. These men exist. This is so cool. Right. And I, um, I kind of touch on this in the book, but I, so in my early twenties, right after college, I dated a man who was an alcoholic, like, and to me, he looked like what I thought alcoholism looked like, right. He was drinking vodka in the morning, hiding bottles under our bed. Um, he was very sick and he was awful to me. And I, would take him to AA sometimes. And I did Al-Anon because of him. And like, for the longest time, I, I kind of held a grudge against AA because it didn't fix him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it didn't fix me. And I sort of, you know, I hated him for how he, how horrible he was to me. And going to AA now, and I don't know, just the humility that it takes to put yourself in a seat there and be like, I also have fucked up and done things I'm not proud of. And, you know, it doesn't mean I will ever let that person back into my life. Right. But to me, it represents some sort of healing that I can go to these meetings and see men who might have treated someone else like that and just have this sort of forgiveness to them because I need that forgiveness for myself. Mm, Yeah, I love that. Well, Tell us about the art then that you started making when you moved to Chicago and to get yourself through your early days of sobriety. Yeah. So I, um, I was a journalist for a long time. I'm a writer. I, I have always loved writing, but, um, I come from a very very blue collar background to me. Art was not something I was or could do. It wasn't something I, I thought, um, was possible for me. You know, and I when I worked at the newspaper in Columbus, I ended up I always ended up covering arts and um, artists and talking to artists all the time. But I never thought of myself as one um, that felt like to I just didn't think I was good enough for that. You know, and you're uh, on the periphery of the yeah. of the artists. Yeah, and I myself there. Yeah. Our start story is so similar. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So I you know, it just I didn't. I didn't want to be, you know, when you call yourself an artist too, there was this, then you're setting yourself up to be judged from that standard. And I just, I didn't want any of that either. You know, I judged myself Mm -hmm. enough. Um, So I would always be talking about projects I wanted to do, but then I would never do them or I'd procrastinate on them until the very end. So I had this excuse of, well, I did it really fast. So next time it'll be better, you know, and, um, I read Carolyn Knapp's Drinking a Love Story, her book. She's, she has this quote, like, when you quit drinking, you stop waiting. And that's exactly what happened. When I moved to Chicago, I just started, I had a lot of time on my hands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was sober and I knew one person. So I was like, 
well, I'm going to start working on these projects I've been talking about forever and wanting to do, but haven't been brave enough to do. No, there's, I got nothing else. So I'm going to start doing them. Um, and I had been wanting to do these embroideries on black and white images from the New York Public Library has a digital domain website where you mm-hmm. can search terms or just you can search these images, um, historical photographs. Uh, they have so much on there, just artifacts um, and imagery. And I loved looking through these. I would spend so much time just, you know, looking seeing what search results would um, get like produce. And I found that fascinating, you know, just like these answers to a search right in the by way of algorithm. Um, and so I started uh, finding images I liked, printing them out, and then I would embroider thread on top of them. And it was a physical, embroidery is such a physical experience. You know, you're um, you're punching holes into a piece of paper. It's long, it takes a long time. And that, I, I really responded to that too, that something needed a lot of work. I don't know. There's just something about today's culture. You know, we're moving so fast. I'm moving so fast. I, I post an Instagram photo and then I move on to the next one. I'm scrolling through Pinterest at someone's artwork and just keep going, you know, something about having to slow down and one stitch at a time was such a good metaphor for what I was going through in my daily experience. Right. And, um, so this, this, practice just sort of evolved. I just was making all of these um, images on on top of images. And I loved that idea of taking a, a historical photo to someone else's story, someone who lived generations before me and putting my own story on top of it felt very meaningful to me. Um, it helped remind me that there's, you know, people have been through this before. They've this is such what I'm going through, not just sobriety, but just emotionally is such a human experience. And, you know, just having that reminder. Also, it was fun. It looked cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Putting color on black and white stuff is just fun in and of itself. I Creativity became a way to recover, but like to hold myself accountable to being what I wanted to be. And I wanted to be someone I didn't want to just talk to artists anymore. I wanted to be one. And so it, this, you know, I just would keep working on things. And I would listen to podcasts. I'd listen to audiobooks while I did it. Again, just this, I needed something to do in that time. And I think that having, again, like I said, it's a very physical thing, pulling thread and a needle through a piece of paper and something, of, you know, I hadn't been living in my body for 10 years. I had just been in my head or blacked out or hung over, you know, it, I hadn't had this experience of being an adult, just physically in my body at all. And so embroidery helped me get there, you know, and like, just, it was sort of a gateway into deeper body work that I needed to do. Does that make sense? Oh, well, you're talking to another Mm -hmm. stitcher. So yes, it makes complete, absolute, complete sense to me. I, I, um, stitch as well. And it's like, a. you're right. It's a forced, uh, slow down. If you want to complete what you're doing and complete the work that you're working on. And it's almost like a meditation. Um, 
especially, well, you know, sometimes I listen to podcasts when I'm stitching, but sometimes I don't, I just get lost in my own thoughts and we don't do that enough anymore. I mean, I'm old enough that I, you know, half my life was spent or over half my life was spent before social media and, you know, personal computers and phones and all of that. Um, and so I had lot, I was a big daydreamer as a kid, but it got lost, um, for me in the, in the past years. And so just being able to slow down and stitch and get lost in my thoughts is, um, I, I treasure it. Yeah. It's such a way to check in with yourself, you know, that it's this moment just for me. Hey, Unruffled listeners, just popping in mid-show to remind you about our Patreon fundraising campaign. To date, we have produced over a year's worth of content and have over a quarter million downloads. We can hardly believe it. If you like what you've been hearing, you can be a patron of this show for as much as you'd like, even if it's just a dollar an episode. To donate, please go to www.patreon.com backslash the unruffled podcast. Thank you for your continued support of the show. Now back to it. I like hearing you guys talk about this because I've just had this memory. Um, so the year before I got sober, Jackie, I, I tried a lot of things on for size. Like I was doing a lot of creative workshops. I was trying to fill something, yet I didn't know how big the hole was going to get, the void was going to get when I quit drinking. But that year prior to me quitting, I did... Um, I signed up for a lot of things and I signed up for an embroidery class with an artist named Lisa Solomon, who's here um, in San Francisco area. And I went to go see her show and took a class from her and I realized it wasn't for me. Like that medium wasn't for me, but I was mm-hmm. wanting something like it. Right. So it was like the search. Like I was like, okay, I love, I, I appreciated embroidery. I love looking at it. I, I'm looking at Sandra's right here in the studio above my head. I have three hoops that she has done for me and I really love it, but it wasn't my thing, but it was like, I could pause long enough to, um, and during the step zero, I could try, I was trying to figure that out. And so yeah. I like that you gave yourself permission to, um, to do the things, to slow down, to be quiet, to be with yourself and, and that it clicked for you. Yeah. And then I can see as, and we'll get into talking about this too, but as you put together this art show with the book and, you know, the corresponding book that you got, you had time to make all of these deeper connections between the photographs and the context of those photographs and, and your, your current life situation and the stitching and all of it, how you could bring it all together right. and tell right. a story. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, so I had been doing this, you know, I didn't really have a a theme or anything, you know, I just, this was just something that I enjoyed doing and it was really practice, you know, of, um, you know, you waste a lot of materials when you're learning how to do something. Mm-hmm. So, um, a lot of trash I made, but, um, so I started, you know, really finding my voice um, visually and which was such an interesting experience because I'd been a writer for so long. So having this uh, visual medium was so complimentary to my writing and was allowing me to start to express things or ideas or questions, explore questions that I just hadn't been able to crack 
in my writing. Um, and so it started to, especially, you know, so I had moved here and then the, the election, the presidential election happened in November and I felt very alone in Chicago and, um, just sort of, you know, I come from a very small town and my, you know, I was angry that Donald Trump won and I, there was such a discussion about the rural urban divide, right? Which is something I felt just so was so deeply personal to my own experience of, you know, growing up in the country on a farm and then leaving and um, living in a city, you know, this, that discussion felt so personal, but I didn't know how to talk about it or think about it or why I felt so strongly that it was a discussion I wanted to be a part of. And so in the embroideries, I started like looking up searching terms in the public domain on this library site of, I think the words were home, native, local. Uh, oh gosh, I don't remember all the words. But so I started um, Chicago and Ohio, I think, because that's where I was from. Um, I started seeing what you know what sort of images I would get returned to me um, for these searches, and I started kind of putting together a collection of pieces that were images from those search results and doing that and creating work on top of them sort of opened the door to me for me to write about just my experience in this living in this divide feeling like I have a foot in both you know arenas and and really just starting to to tap into that sort of discussion for myself and then it it sort of morphed into this yeah this gone country project where the writing and the imagery sort of played off of each other and lived cohesively together, which was cool. It was cool that it was an interdisciplinary sort of craft. You know, it wasn't just embroidery. It wasn't just the writing. It was both things helped me express something. <laughs> now for our listeners, yeah. I just want to give them a foundation here. So these, these images that you got from the library that you are yeah. stitching on top of, right? That is going to be its own art show, right? Is that was that was it that set up first, or was the book done alongside it the whole time that you created these essays that went along with each image as it went? Yeah, that's a good question. So the I was kind of doing them in tandem, right? Uh, I had I was doing the imagery, and then i I would make I would start writing for. A particular piece. I would um, make a piece and then that would sort of inspire something and then I'd write about it. And that just sort of kept building. And then I got the show booked. And so then it's, then I started honing in on, oh, these, these pieces could live together or this, you know, this, right. I feel like the book though is it's, it's, presented as a companion piece to the gallery show, which was just the images, right? The embroidered images. But um, I think it all sort of fell under this umbrella as one woman's experience with this discussion, do you know? So it's a, mm -hmm. I, I did the, I did them in tandem. Um, but then I, you know, I picked the pieces for the show first and then compiled the book with writing that I had been doing the past couple of years. Did you publish the writing on your, like on a blog or was it all private? Um, yeah, so it was, it's a public site, but it's, I don't share it ever. Okay. Um, so I have a blog, but I didn't, I wouldn't post them on the blog. I don't know. There was something about, I needed, <laughs> I, 
I needed to publish them because I needed to keep up with it. I don't know. There was something, if I was just making it, I didn't know if I would continue doing it at least to get myself started. Right. So I just had a website where I would post the photo and the writing and then, um, that and it was just sort of my own sort of live journal, you know. Yeah, like you were, you were just your word you, to yourself. Yeah, you were just yeah. giving yourself some accountability, setting that up for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think you know, I think if you're an artist or just creative at all, you you ask yourself, you ask yourself like three questions: where where do I come? Where did I come from? You know, like what are my roots? What have I seen in this short lifetime? And and then what does it mean to me? And, you know, when you interpret that, I think, I think the purpose is you intend to make something that is familiar, yet it's unique, right? Right. And I, I think that you did that. You, you did that so well. I mean, you can see just your... Um, Explore, exploration through, you know, the thoughts and the, and the, and the, the things that each of these images or each thing that you worked on, like what it evoked in you, the memories and how you interpret that in your current life. And, um, I just really, I just really enjoyed it. I think, I think I enjoyed it because probably just because of my own personal background too, because I was a sociology major and a poli sci minor. And I've, you know, always been fascinated with how socioeconomic climate like affects real individuals and, you know, the actual details that make up each person's story. I'm also a photographer and a stitcher. Like I said, I love digging through archival stuff too. That's just so We're on the same wavelength. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. Like I really, you have a that you have a chapter in your book where you talk about a ball of twine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I loved that because uh, my grandma and I have farmers on both sides of my family too. So um, my, my granny was a my grand parents on my mom's side were Alabama farmers and they were very poor. It was a different story on my dad's side. They, they became wealthy from their farming, but not on my mom's side. And, um, I was gifted all of like all of my granny's stuff. A couple of years after she passed away, my mom just couldn't hang on to it anymore. She was downsizing and, um, in the stuff was this ball of twine. And I was just like, I did the same thing. I stared at that ball of twine forever. And it was just like this, is such a useful thing. I can see why she carried this around for for her entire life. (laughs) Right. Or that an object can become so representative of an experience that you've had, you know? Right. Yes. And I, I feel like, yeah, that's so cool. And I feel like so much of this work too in gone country became about home and family. And I think, I think without knowing it, tying it back to my sobriety without knowing it, I was trying to find a home, you know, and I was trying to explore this issue of home and what, where I felt at home. And I didn't anywhere, let alone inside of myself, you know, and that's what I I think all of this was just, which again, talk about conversations artists have, like home is such an integral topic to why we do anything. And Mm -hmm. it, the, 
that was what I was searching for when I was typing in literally home Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, and in this work, that's what I was trying to experience. And in fact, when, when I did the gallery show in September at every Saturday in the space, we had um, a storytelling event. And so I can't, you know, artists, writers, comedians came in and they shared a piece. And all I said was just, it just has to be about the topic of home. And it was so cool to see and hear just how people interpreted that so differently, you know, and I, I feel like this book and the show that work to me represents me finally finding a home inside of myself through sobriety and creativity. Hmm. I love that. I love that you found a space too that let you bring all of these kind of multi multimedia, multi creative things into under one in into one space. Yeah, they're amazing. <laughs> yeah. I'm jealous. <laughs> I have a quick question about um how so how okay here's the here's the here's the part that I get stuck. So actually I'm gonna ask you this question after I ask you to read this. I know I asked you to read one okay. paragraph before we started recording, but can I change that for that chapter? Yeah. So you wrote a, an essay here called God Made an Artist. I loved that. I wrote that down too, Tammy. Yeah. And it's <laughs> so on good. page 111, which I loved as well. I don't know if that was on purpose or not, but I think that's pretty cool. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> but I was hoping, um, let's see, one, two. Could you read the first three paragraphs for our listeners? Because I just thought, I mean, the whole thing I would want you to read, but but in, in the mm-hmm. um, I think just that gets to the heart of like what you're talking about, how you created this project, and how I think so many of us feel um, that are afraid to call ourselves artists, you know, until until yeah. until you, the right people deem it so, um, or so you think. But could you read that for our listeners? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And let me just preface it with um, the reason I I wrote this is because in the in the introduction, I tell this story of um, (laughs) so in my job as a copywriter, I in one of my gigs, we we were doing a workshopping session with on the East Coast with a. Um, a client. And as part of the work, we would show, you know, this strategy work, we would show commercials to a group of stakeholders and be like, do you like the tone of this commercial, right? Like this, the voice, the messaging, like, what do you think of this? And one of my favorite examples to use for that was um, the Ram truck commercial, God Made a Farmer. And it's, the audio is this clip of, um, oh, I forget his name, but this speech from the Future Farmers of America convention in like the 70s, right? And it's it's Paul very, Harvey, right? Yes, Paul Harvey. Yes, yes. who yes. has a very distinct voice. Yes, yeah. it's beautiful. It's a beautiful commercial, and it's very sentimental about farming and, you know, uh, that lifestyle and working hard and just all this stuff. And um, the, I, you know, I love this commercial, especially, you know, I don't love farming, and but I, it speaks to me as someone who grew up around that, just this emotional response I have to this commercial. And so I always expect people to have the same reaction. And we showed this clip at this strategy session and um, a stakeholder, you know, I turn on the lights and I'm waiting for this, like, oh, wow, that was so moving. And um, one of the stakeholders goes, what, are there no farmers of color? And it just was so funny to me because I'm like, you know what? He's right. Like, oh, right. Yeah. It's just a bunch of white people in this commercial. But like, 
it, to me, it was so perfectly, it was just such a perfect moment of this split sense of self of like my super liberal progressive side. It's like, yeah, why, you know, why don't they, you know, there's a lot of issues that we could be talking about that this commercial represents, but then also this side of me that's like, those are my people, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so God made an artist was sort of my play on Paul Harvey's speech and, um, about, you know, replacing farmer with artists. Okay. I love it. I love it. Okay. Can you read four paragraphs? Yeah. Four. I sure. Want four. <laughs> yeah. Okay. God made an artist. And on the last day, because she had spent too much time procrastinating out of fear that what she made wouldn't be good enough. And because sometimes just thinking about something and refreshing a Twitter feed or researching MFA programs, she'd probably never have the money to attend, feels like she's making actual progress. And because finishing anything takes a divine-like discipline, God looked down on the real mess the humans were making of her almost finished masterpiece and said, I need a rebel. So God made an artist. God said, I need someone who is willing to question what's being presented as truth, spend 16 back-to-back days in the studio or on the stage or at their IMAX making work that turns out to be totally unusable, chain smoke things they know will kill them but are addicted to because they wanted to look cool at warp Tour, then start over on something they were hoping to have finished a month ago, and then stay up until 5 5 a.m. in the rippling cold sweat of insomnia, YouTube rabbit-holing, planet Earth binge-watching, and depression. So God made an artist. I need somebody with an outlook and lifestyle that offends most me-fearing people, someone who is strong enough to not be welcomed by the masses, but still open enough to understand what their rejectors need to hear, see, or think about. Someone who is so sensitive, everything has the potential to hurt them somebody to break things, dig through trash supplies, recognize the value of accidents, see things that are not there and things that are real, and annoy their walking partners by making them wait so photos can be snapped of a really interesting rust pattern on the dumpster. Somebody to say, last one, I swear to God, that shape has given me a great idea and it's just what my mood board needs right now. So God made an artist. God said, I need somebody who will make something out of nothing, despite the fact that no one really is asking for it, let alone paying them to do it. I need somebody who will continue creating these things, even when everything and everyone else seems to be telling them to be logical and pick a real major and or career and grow up. (laughs) Someone who will have the courage to make something, even if no one else ever sees it. I need someone brave enough to continue making after a bad critique someone with the patience to wait out the work and keep going, someone who understands that each wrong stroke, wonky scale model, misnote, bad joke, wasted material, flat dialogue, or one-dimensional character is leading them to a moment that will finally tectonic shift it all into place and make the embarrassment that goes hand-in-hand with creative trial and error worth it. So God made an artist. I love it. I love the, and it keeps going too. Like you talk about, I need you to be a marketer as well. And you go into that whole diatribe about how awful that part is. It's the worst. (laughs) It's the worst. We keep, we talk about it. It's really the worst. It's so good. The whole thing. That's so good. You just hit the nail on the head with that. It just, you got it. (laughs) And then I, the end is like about, you know, it's sort of, it's all super negative and all the like, you know, these things you're driven to do as a maker, right? And the the awful experiences of it, but you just have to keep doing it. But then the end sort of is my just owed not to myself, but just other makers where it's like, 
artists to me make me feel not crazy. They make me, mm-hmm. when I see a piece of work or read, especially reading is something I really connect to. When I read a piece of writing that I'm like, that I feel so seen <laughs> right now. Yeah. It, keeps me going. It's so important. It's what was that Don Draper quote, like writing's the least important, most important thing, uh, you know, like creativity, that's what it is. And it's so true. Like it keeps me alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I love what you've done here, Jackie. This is, this is like a physical, this book is like a physical manifestation, like something that you can just keep looking at way beyond your show right so I definitely get how that show seemed like a turning point I had a similar experience this summer with a show that I did and that has shifted my recovery as well so when you said that you went to meetings in September um, I think it's done that for me too Um, I was already attending meetings but it changed my you know, as a, as your recovery is always shifting and changing, but that was kind of a, a little pivot point, having a, a public show, showing yourself in that really vulnerable way, um, especially with work that is, yeah, deeply personal. Right. How, how did you, I'm curious, how did you get the book physically made? Yeah. So I self-published this. Okay. Uh, I had gone to a, I knew I wanted to, so I have written for I wrote a travel guidebook for Reedy Press. I've done the publishing, you know, I know how that works and have published a book before through a publisher. And I knew that I knew how that was possible, but this was such a personal thing. I was like, I don't, and I wanted to use it for it as a companion piece for the show. So I decided to just publish it myself and get it printed to be sort of almost like a, you know, a chat book you could get at the show. Right. Um, this sort of this additional expression of it. So I worked with a company on it. It's funny, actually, I, I went to a writer's conference in Chicago and there were a bunch of like publishing companies there. And the one, there was one that it does, they do self-publishing, you know, and I wanted to meet with them and talk to them and I get there and they're like, Oh yeah, we're from Columbus, Ohio. And I was like, what? <laughs> of course you are. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you, I have to work with you now. So it was a great experience. I ended up, uh, you know, I sent them my manuscript and, um, all of all the, I designed the cover. I had everything ready. The, the side of the book is the same. It's, it's a photo of the frames from the gallery show. Like they sort of just laid it all out and then they, um, they set it up on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And then I just ordered copies for my show. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful. The the pages, what I'm loving is the stitching on the pages. And I'm like, how did she do that? Yeah, thank you. Just really, um, there's these type of steps that happen in the creative process. And I'm not writing a book or anything, but there's these technological steps for an artist that uh, this is where I get stuck the most. Yeah. Like if it's going to require me to... Well, right now I'm trying to learn how to do an online class and I'd rather stick a thousand needles in my eye. Like I really <laughs> don't want to do that part at all. Um, so just like taking your concept, I mean, you've done this um, in a short amount of time really to do this beautiful show and to write all of these pieces and to manifest it in a book and have that out in the world along with it. Like all the while doing your job and yeah. recording a podcast with your husband and doing all of the things that we do. Um I just think that's really, it's, it's fantastic and remarkable. Thank you. Um, well, and I, I have to say, like, it sort of just poured out of me. I, mm. 
and I don't mean that to brag. I just I I I want to to anyone who's thinking about getting sober, that is that was such the reward of making that choice for myself is a hard choice. But like, I feel like that opened the door for me to, this has been living inside of me for a decade, you know? And as soon as I sat down and gave myself permission to do it, it, it happened, you know, it, it came, it just, not that it wasn't hard. Right. But like it, and I did, there were moments when I wanted to stick the needle into my eye, but um, <laughs> you know, it, it I, it is, is encouraging to me how quickly it just came because it had been there the whole time. Yeah. Do you have a, do you have a what's next or, or are you yeah. working on something new? Yeah. So I, I love this. I really loved making this artwork and combining these two disciplines, right. Of writing and stitching and having those work together to express and explore an idea. And I, I'm again, sort of like what you were saying, there's this, um, shift. I feel like now that that's done, I've moved on personally and just aesthetically. And I've, I've been really into like still life imagery recently and still life paintings. Again, I just think that's my subconscious being like, slow down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I want to explore that more. I want to maybe take my own photographs and embroider on top of them um, and put the writing with that. I don't know. It's something it, I'm just really interested in that um, digging deeper into, into the work and craft of writing and embroidery. I want to, I'm just so hungry to get better at these two things too. I, I want to, keep growing in it. So I feel like I, I loved this setup of doing the gallery show, the storytelling performance in the book all is one. I think that was such a cool way. Again, like sharing our stories has, I think, you know, witnessing someone else's grief and strength allows you to tap into your own of both. And so I want to create that kind of space again, using the same um, methods it'll just be a totally new topic. You know, I'm kind of, I'm over the gone country. Now I'm like, what's, what does still life mean? What does still standing mean? What does, what are our relationships to objects? You know? I love, mm. I love that you have the time and space and energy in recovery to explore things, right? Like that you can dig deeper and that it can be, uh, it, it's almost like it, there's, even though I get challenged, like I said, and I want to stick all those needles in my eye, I know I can do it. I yeah. know I can do it. I just have to figure it out. And, and I have more creative confidence because I am sober. Not, mm -hmm. you know, before when I was drinking, and Sandra and I have shared this many times on this show, just like talking about like what you said, all the things that we were going to do. Yeah. <laughs> and then we yeah. never do them. <laughs> you know, and so now it's like I can talk about things, and if they fall away, it's really because I'm making a conscious choice to say that's that wasn't a great idea, but that led me to this idea, so that's going to stop, and I'm going to move forward on this, not out of fear, um, or maybe sometimes there's a little bit of fear, but but because um, I'm in a new direction and I give myself permission now, and I think creating in recovery has been. Um, it's been such a, an important part for me to stay the course and to get lost in myself and, and the stories of others because uh, I did a project where I featured other people for a year, women in recovery for a year, and it kept me accountable. And it was with black and white photographs and, and paint. Um, but I just, I think um, 
I like that this, your show, you know, shows come and go, right? And then they're over. But mm-hmm. this book is like this beautiful way to keep um, sharing it with people. So if our listeners want to get your book, what is the best way to get your book, Jackie? Yeah, so it's on Amazon and it's Gone Country, Gone, comma Country by Jackie Mancy. Um, I also have a link on my website, which is JackieMancy.com. And you can look through you can look through the artwork on that site too, so you know what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so they That's can. Beautiful. I, I, thank you, thank you so much. And I, I love that you guys have had that the same experience. And there's just something about. I feel like when I was drinking, everything was moving so fast, and sobriety has shown me that some things take time, including myself. You know, and that has allowed me to like you're saying, dive into that process of creativity and know that you're going to mess up. It's going to, something might lead to another thing. You know, I made a lot of pieces that didn't mean anything. And then, but then that led me to uncovering this nugget of, um, home, right. It's, it's such a process. And I feel like when I was drinking, because I was living in this nightmarish groundhog's day, I, I just, I had never experienced that, being willing to take time with yourself and time with something else. Yeah. My last day drinking was Groundhog's Day, Jackie. Did oh, you know no that? way. <laughs> so the metaphor is strong so for me perfect. with that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yep, that's how I was living. Um, we want to get to your three things, but is there anything okay. before we go there, Sandra, anything else you wanted to add? No, no, I'm going to, I'm going to, at the end, I'm going to let you repeat, um, your website and I don't know if you do any other social media like Instagram or whatever, but we'd love for anybody to be able to pop on and kind of see what we're talking about. If there's a yeah. place they can see your images and all that. Yeah. Well, p- the end of the show, we kind of, um, have done this thing with our guests where we ask them if they have three things in their uh, unruffled toolbox. Um, this mm-hmm. can be sobriety related or related to creativity. So do you have three things to share? Yeah. Okay. So my three things, I, I wanted to start with this book that I read when I was <laughs> in that step zero. And um, I kept, when I was looking into things, I kept Googling like black and white thinking and like, I'm so upset. <laughs> I kept getting return results for dialectical behavior therapy, which is a type of therapy that uh, was created to uh, help treat borderline personality disorder, but it's also used a lot for addiction recovery. And I bought the manual <laughs> and I'm not a doctor. Like this was just like, uh, you know, a poor girl's trying to get therapy for herself. So like, you know, I am not recommending this as your only treatment, but the, so the DBT skills training manual by Marsha Linham, um, and there's DBT workbooks you can find online too. Basically they, it's, it's all about skills of mindfulness, creating skills of emotional regular regulation and interpersonal effectiveness, um, really about just be like getting to know yourself and getting in touch with what you're feeling and seeing feelings as just feelings, you know, and thoughts as just thoughts. And all of that was so important to my recovery because, you know, the skills that I learned by just by reading this book, um, because so much of my drinking was related to just emotion and emotional extremes and not being able to cope with them. So that's one. Uh, Number two is, a. a, I I love, I love that you do the toolbox because I'm such a productivity hound and like, I love finding stuff like this, but I, I use the best self code journal 
Have you guys heard of this? Mm-mm. Um, it's like a day planner, but like it's uh, it's broken up into three month increments. So you sort of plan out your goal for a three month period, and then step by step they sort of guide you through how you're going to achieve that goal in the three months. And you have a daily spread where you write down something every morning you're grateful for and something at night you're grateful for. And then a lot of, it's a lot of time blocking. So what are you doing today? Block it out into times. That's been helpful for me having a a regular schedule where like every morning I do this one affirmation video and, you know, take time with myself to, to stay sober really. Um, having something like that has been really helpful and like breaking it down. You know, I love how the planner breaks it down into the three month increment. So I get very tangible and specific about what I want to do or achieve in the next three months instead of, you know, I feel like I used to be like, Oh yeah, I'll do that in this year. That's going to be my yearly goal, you know, but I would never make it, um, a plan. Didn't have a plan. Yeah. And it helps guide you through that. And it's like, there's like daily quotes on your page of like, just getting stuff done and like making stuff happen. So I love that. So I'm, I just Googled it. So it's the, it's the self journal then that you use. Cause it looks like they have yeah. lots of other things. Okay. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So the yeah, self co and it's co.com dot co. Okay. Got it. Yeah. I'll, we'll put yeah, a link. We'll put it all listed in the show notes. Okay, cool. And then my third one is I've been reading this book. Um, maybe you guys have been reading it too. The recovery, the recovering intoxication and its aftermath by Leslie. So freaking good. So good. Talking about yeah. Just finished. I just finished it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh! I've been slowly working my way through it because it's 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 a tome. Yeah, it is for sure. Um, But it's she's a beautiful writer. Oh my gosh! Such a good writer. And how about it? Like how about she? How she? Okay, I'm sorry. I just took over your tool. <laughs> well, let's she's out about it. Let's talk it. Let's talk it out. How she's how, she weaves her own experience with her her amazing journalistic skills. Yeah, and she does it so well. Yeah, Ooh. great. Yeah, she's she's brilliant, and I love um, how she presents these stories of famous writers and how we have tied this narrative of them romanticizing their alcoholism as what made them so genius in their writing. And she kind of, you know, she just reports on it and you're, you kind of discover, Oh, that's so destructive to have to believe that. And you know, these, these poor people trying to follow that. I know because when you pluck each one of them out of their context, it is so easy to romanticize it. You can see why we've all done it. But then when she like so carefully puts them back into their context, like, you know, what was going on in their lives? What was going on in the world at that time? It just, yeah, it, it's so revealing. Right. It's so well done. Yeah. So I recommend that to anyone. I mean, it's as a writer, I love it, but I think all of your listeners too, just with the creativity aspect of it and how alcoholism ties into that and just culturally what our narrative is surrounding that. It's a really interesting take on it. Yeah. Yeah. Here, here. Oh, well this, so this show is going to air on New Year's Eve. So, um, I just think it's been an incredible year and I think that, um, I, I like that we're ending the year with you, Jackie. And I do too. I think really, you're really going to, yeah, I think you're going to inspire 
people to want to go make some art. (laughs) Go ahead. Yeah, no, just it's a new year. And I love, you know, I'm a big fan. January is my favorite month. So I'm like, it's like the real Christmas for me is kind of like New Year's Eve, like tomorrow's New Year's Day. And (laughs) what am I going to make? What's my word for the year? What am I going to map out for the year? What are my dreams, you know? And I don't necessarily make resolutions, but I'm a big fan of the word for the year. So I love the word for the year. Do you know what your word for the year is? Um, kind of, but not, I haven't landed on it yet, but this okay. year, this year it was grace. Um, mm. and it picked me this year. I didn't pick it. I picked it at a, at a, a Buddhist retreat center that I was at in December. Um, they passed around some angel cards, which I'd never heard of or didn't know what they were, mm. but I said, whatever word I pick out of this thing is going to be, it's going to pick me this year. And it was grace, which has been a tough one to translate. And I'm writing about it. It's not so black and white, like some of my other words. Yeah. What was your word this year? Wow, that's wonderful. Um, bravery was my word this year because I knew I would need it for this show. <laughs> and did you find that kind of spilling throughout the year? Yeah. 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 Especially, I mean, in, in my interpersonal relationships too. And like um, just being brave and honest about what I'm feeling or, you know, I, I don't think honesty was something I lived <laughs> before getting sober. So yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think after, you know, uh, again, just encouraging people to, I love this podcast because I, I do want people to feel inspired to just make stuff and, and to know that like, no one knows what they're doing. You can do whatever you want, <laughs> like right. make stuff like it's, and it's been for me, it just, again, like doing the show has changed me and made me believe in myself in a totally new way. And it's, you know, I feel like some of my family relationships even have gotten better because this work has felt so healing that I've been able to move forward relationships that were stalled. You know, it's just, there's so many benefits to expressing yourself. I, I agree that it reminded me, I, I say this a lot, but you know, I always thought that um, talent was something you were born with. Not that, you know, I didn't think I had no idea that it was something you cultivated and worked on and failed a bazillion times at before you actually got good at something. So you're right. Just, you just got to pick something up. You're not going to be good at it at first. It's a creative practice. (laughs) Yes. A practice. Do you have a word for next year, Jackie, since this is going to air on new year's Eve? Do you know it? I love the word thing. Um, no, I haven't really picked yet. Cause I, yeah. I think I do though. I feel because I'm like reading about still lives and slowing down, I think it'll be stillness or something mm-hmm. to that effect, you know, of just like tapping into that a little more with that plays into everything, just being more present with people when I'm with them or to, you know, taking on less work. <laughs> do, you, being do you know the work of Mary Jo Hoffman? No, I'm going to send you a link to her. She's on Instagram as Mary J.O. Hoffman. And okay. she has um, a whole project called Still. And she <gasps> oh, pho- I just Googled it. Yeah, she <laughs> photographed things in nature every day for years. And she set them up on, you know, white pieces of paper in her kitchen. She shared her process, too. I, I learned about her a few years ago through Lisa Congdon. And her work is phenomenal. And it's... Um, You'll see if anybody wants to check her out. It's Mary Jo Hoffman on Instagram, and you can just get a little sampling of her beautiful still life work. This is wonderful. Isn't it pretty? Yeah, this is 
this is scratching me right where I itch. Okay, yeah. good. <laughs> good. Well, um, I know we didn't get to talk a lot about your podcast, but where can people listen to you and your husband chit chat and um, talk about feminism? And um, he's a comedian, so I'm sure. Yeah, it's definitely a, it's an entertainment uh, right. podcast. But um, we, yeah, so that's at femcompod.com. And you can see more of my work at my my website, jackiemanti.com. Um, I have a page for art where you can see the work that was in the show, um, the gallery show, and there's a link to buy the book if you're interested. And then I blog on there as well. Great. Uh, and then I'm on Twitter at Jackie underscore Manti and on Instagram as at Jackie Manti. <laughs> ah, perfect. All to find you. Yeah, good, perfect. Good. Uh, well, thank you so much for being on the show, Jackie. And I hope you have a really beautiful 2019. You as well. Thank you guys so much for your Thank work. you, Jackie. This was lovely. The Unruffled Podcast was created and produced by Sandra Primo and Tammy Salas. Our show is edited and mixed by Steve Hecht. Original music composed and performed by Caitlin Schumacher. Original artwork created by Tammy with the help of graphic designers, Chris Aguirre and Amy Lanier. Thanks for listening.